texts, and I'll ask ahead of time here. Who wants to take 2 Corinthians 6.18? Who's got that? Howard? And then Revelation 3.12. Keenan. Okay, so God has granted, and if there's people that don't have a booklet, I think there's some at the back, or you can use your founder's app. Either way. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name. And that's where we're going to pick up. So, uh, Howard, 2 Corinthians 6, 18. Okay, so again, we're on this theme of adoption. We saw last week, Howard doesn't mind if I put him on the spot, I don't think. Is everyone a child of God, Howard? Or is that a right reserved for believers? And you see it right here, right? I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Okay, so this is uh, personal, this is intimate, this isn't for all people generally. Yes, God is the creator of all people, and yes, all people are made in the image of God. But only repentant believers can call God Father. Okay? Pagan unbelievers cannot call God Father, because he's not their father. He's their judge. But when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we're transferred from the family of Adam to the family of Christ, God becomes our father truly our father and so this is one of the many blessings of salvation is that God becomes your father God cares for you he's intimately concerned with the details of your life and last week we talked about the old mainstream mainline liberal churches that in the 1920s started to talk lots about the universal brotherhood of man and the universal fatherhood of God and you see that idea still when you see coexist bumper stickers and that kind of thing. But the Bible paints quite a different picture. God is father to his children. God is not father to everybody. He is father to his children. And a verse like this demonstrates that this is a personal commitment God makes to those who are his. Then Kenan, Revelation 3.12. Okay, so Keenan, what you just read there, is it clear that there's a stamp on the people that inhabit this new city of God? Yeah. There is no question when the new Jerusalem comes down who belongs to God. Okay, and this, so this isn't for everyone, this is for every believer. This is for every believing one. And I'm going to stop there. And again, we, we talked about this theme last week, but because we are cutting against the grain, at least somewhat, of 
what we're told all the way around us about tolerance and, and so forth. Uh, because this does cut against that grain, I want to leave room for discussion or for, uh, for question, whatever feedback there is on this. If this is making sense or if there's follow-up questions or discussion about this, can we see this? God's children can call him father. Unbelievers cannot call God father. You have to listen to your dad. <laughs> yeah, so Howard's just saying here, if you didn't hear him further in the back, Howard's saying that it's interesting that this would be controversial because why would you want to call God your father unless you believe in him, right? Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, exactly. So, People who are not in God's family don't get to inherit God's gifts. They don't get to inherit eternal life in the new creation with him. They, why we would call him father to everyone, I, I don't understand. But that idea is certainly, certainly out there. He's potentially available to everyone, for all the believing ones. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, okay, so how we're saying in regards to election, how does this work? Or in, in regards to predestination, um, I think even those of us who hold to kind of historic reformational theology can say that the offer of the gospel is for everybody. Because we don't know. I have no way of telling until someone's conversion whether they're elect or not. I can't see that. Right? Who, who would have guessed that Saul of Tarsus was elect when he's butchering Christians? Probably nobody. Right? What if, and this is a real possibility, and I think it's, he's brushing up against, what if Richard Dawkins is elect? What if Richard Dawkins bends the knee to Jesus Christ before he dies? All his friends are becoming <laughs> insane or Christian. Richard Dawkins, by his own admission, is in an extremely uncomfortable place. Because he lives in this pretend world where science is Lord. And seemingly, where science is Lord, you can't even talk about male and female anymore. That whole world has imploded in on itself. Richard Dawkins' world doesn't exist anymore. And his closest friends are becoming Christians. And he, he just recently said, you know, after one of his most recent friends became a Christian, he said, maybe I do have more to learn about the Christian faith. He wants to explore it further. Okay, well, that's interesting. And yeah. But wouldn't it be like God to do something like that? And I'm not going to, I don't know if he will or not. C.S. Lewis was converted by disproving Christianity. Lee Strobel was converted by disproving Christianity. God has told this story before. I wouldn't be shocked if he does. But that is to say, you cannot say ever with certainty 
that the hardest, angriest unbeliever is non-elect. You can't say that. What if they are? What if their day of conversion just hasn't happened yet? Right? So we can see converted people, but you cannot make a final judgment on anyone who is at war with God today. Because tomorrow God may give them a new heart. And they will bend the knee. Um, and God will become their father and not their judge. That can and does happen. And so we, we can present God as potential father. We can say truthfully, if you repent of your sins and receive the gospel, God will become your father. We can say that. That's true. Because that's not making a statement on whether or not that person will. But we can say, if you do this, then yes, God will. God will be your father. He will be a father to you if you turn. But, yeah, so that, that is related to that. God is potentially there. We offer God to everybody, but he is not actually everybody's father. He is father to those who are his. Tyson. Well, it, okay, so Tyson's asking, who would say that God is everyone's father? Believers or unbelievers? Sir, yeah, he, that kind of person. That he gets us people would say that, sure. Where this started is really this, we tend to think of liberalism as unique to our time, but it's not. I'd say the strongest days of theological liberalism were from about 1880 to about 1930. I'd say we're actually, the st where theological liberalism was a powerful force. In fact, it was, the Christian church was theologically liberal in those years. And people like us were very much at the fringes. Now what has happened is that old mainline Christianity has just, it's dying very, uh, you could almost say it is dead, right? The, the United Church, uh, for example, what is it? Well, it's six ladies in their 90s calling a real estate agent because it's time to sell the building, right? That is the United Church of Canada. But that was mainstream Christianity in the 1920s. And that, and I, within theologically liberal circles, are they Christians or aren't they? That's probably case by case. I don't know. But that kind of talk came from the church. It didn't come from unbelievers. That started in the church, that kind of talk. Um, okay. Yep. So Tina's saying that she grew up thinking that, and that would have been in Roman Catholicism, right? And I don't know, would you, looking back on your Roman Catholic upbringing, would you have seen it as conservative Catholicism, liberal Catholicism? Were you not thinking in those terms? Was it Benedict Catholicism or was it Francis Catholicism? <laughs> okay.
But that is, right? So is it true that Jesus loves the little children? Yes. But if you just sing that and there's no teaching and no instruction and no music to reinforce, if there is a guardrail on the other side here. And I think that's exactly what my experience would be too. As Tina's saying, it's not some of what we were taught or have absorbed from the Christian world around us isn't necessarily wrong. It's just if you just teach one truth without a corresponding counterweight, all your thoughts move in a certain direction. And if they never get corrected, you're in a ditch pretty quick, right? But with almost all Christian truths, there is a guardrail on either side of the road. And, and to stay in the bounds of orthodoxy, we have to we have to have a guardrail on either side. Otherwise, we move into unhealthy distortions one way or the other. Yeah. Anything else on this? Okay, yeah, and that's a good word picture. Jeremy just mentioned, if you didn't hear it, that the, the language of father even works in terms of it takes a father to create life in the womb of a mother, right? You can't be a father unless life has come from you. And likewise, when we apply it to our spiritual lives, how can we be spiritually God's children unless God has breathed life into our, into our hearts, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. So the picture works many different ways. Yep. Anything else? We're ready to move on to the next one here. Then let's keep going. After footnote three. And then we receive the spirit of adoption. Romans 8.15. Who wants to take that? Nathan. Yep, go ahead. Romans 8.15. Okay, so again, who can cry, Abba, Father, Nathan? Yep, those who are adopted as sons, right? So this is one of the benefits you get as a believer is you can cry, Abba, Father. God truly is your Father. He truly is. You can take all your needs to Him. He is a Father. He cares, He protects, He provides, He fights for His family. Okay, God is a Father in the true original sense of the word and for those of us who don't have earthly fathers and we tend to uh, project the failings of our earthly fathers onto God I would suggest that's opposite right the images always work from top down God is the original father our earthly fathers are meant to be a reflection of that father 
So if your earthly father has failed you, don't project that onto God. See that rather as a human man who has failed to live up to the original template. Okay? Us earthly fathers are just copies. And copies rarely live up to the original. So we need to look top down. We need to look from God's eye view as to what fatherhood is, not bottom up. Because I think it's very hard for some people to see God as a father if they've had a painful experience with their own father. But remember, God's the original. Us men are just the copies. And no copy lives up to the original. There was a hand here. To the one, yeah, okay. So go back to Revelation 3. Yes, okay, let's go back. Revelation 3, Vern is just drawing our attention back to the condition um, on Revelation 3. So let's go back to, well, I guess we could, this is for the church in Philadelphia, we could go all the way back to verse 7, but let's go back to verse 10. Okay, so this is a suffering church in the first century that John has addressed this letter to. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Vern is pointing out that there is a condition. This is for the one who perseveres. This is for the one who conquers, right? Okay, and this is written to the Christian church in Philadelphia that was there in the first century. And there is severe persecution coming to them almost immediately after they get this letter. Uh, and we can make application, of course, to suffering down to this very day. But it says, to the one who conquers. And you're going to see Jesus using that kind of language to the one who overcomes, right? And, and we're going to see that in the Gospel of Matthew. To the one who overcomes. He who, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Okay? So when we talk about uh, even, let's say, a reformational understanding that it's God who gives the new birth, it's God who breathes life into the soul, um, that doesn't remove the conditions of faith and repentance and sanctification that we must do. But... I think it came up here a while back, but to say that there's a condition doesn't throw something off to random chance in God's world. God can make conditional promises in which he supplies the conditions for the people, right? So from God's vantage point, he will make sure that this church pushes through. He will make sure Christians make it all the way home, and yet it's our responsibility to do that. God works in the salvation so we can work it out. So... Uh, the picture I used previously is, uh, is of a dad giving his kid a, a wallet full of money to go to the store so the kid can go buy mom and dad a Christmas gift. 
there's a condition at the store. You don't get this thing unless you give me money. There's a, there's a real condition. No one will go to heaven without being sanctified. Nobody. Right? If, if you made a decision, if you walked the altar, if you did all this, and then you live like the devil for the rest of your life, guess what you can be sure of? You're not going to heaven. You're not. Okay? There's, no, there's no justification without sanctification. Now, does that mean it's all self-effort? No, it doesn't. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Vern Peters and Matt Plett have to do that. We have to get to work working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says, for it's God who works in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. So what is it that makes Vern willing and able to work out that salvation? Well, it's the spirit of God in you. God works it in, you work it out. So we have a real responsibility Okay, unrepentant sinners will not go to heaven, even if they remember that revival meeting in Steinbach in 1972 and they made a decision and then they continued to live as though nothing happened. That's not a biblical picture of salvation. Okay? Sinless perfectionism isn't either, but, but sanctification is a real thing that we have to get to work on. There has to be uh, bearing fruit. And so to this church, for all the truly saved people in this church, they will conquer. They will. Because God's worked that salvation into them. Some of them that are visibly part of the church, I don't doubt, will drop out. Okay? And I hate to say it, I hope this isn't the case. We shouldn't be shocked if there's people in this church who drop out. I hope that never happens. But in real life, not everyone in the church is a Christian. And so... Uh, I, I don't see a contradiction between God making conditional promises and also making sure that those conditional promises come to, come to pass. If that... Uh, yes. Yep. Nope, that's good. Anything else here? No? Then let's keep moving. Okay, so we receive the spirit of adoption. Then it goes on to say that we have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are able to cry, Abba, Father. And here we have two passages. Who wants to take Galatians 4, verse 6? Carter. And Ephesians 2.18. Was there a hand over here somewhere? Lisa. Carter, whenever you've got it, then... Please read Galatians 5, 4, verse 6. Okay. Pretty straightforward, right? God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. This is a picture of rebirth. Born-again people can say, Abba, Father. They can say, Dad, to God. God is their Father. And Abba is not just a disco group from Sweden in the 70s. The word Abba is an interesting uh, word because it conveys both an intimacy and a closeness without being irreverent. I've heard people pray, good morning, Daddy, and it drives me absolutely wild. <laughs> I cannot stand that because that's all closeness without any reverence. But I've also heard people speak of God as a father who's totally uninterested in the lives of his children, as though he's a faraway absentee father. 
And that's not true. The word Abba, Father, conveys something that is both reverent and respectful to God as Father, and yet also intimately concerned with the affairs of his children. And so Father, I think, is a good English equivalent that conveys closeness and respect both. If, if we lose one of those, again, there's these guardrails on either side. If it's all intimacy and no respect and no power, you don't have a biblical conception of God. If it's all power with no closeness, that's Allah. That's Islam. Okay? It's just sheer force without any kind of uh, personal involvement. And we do not serve Allah. We serve the living God. Who is Father? Dave. Yeah, amen. Dave just mentioned a very important point here. And this is actually very important. More important than I will be able to convey to you in a few minutes. But to step into the biblical conception of reality is a pretty big leap from 21st century North America to the real world. That's a, that's a big distance. Because we live, even as conservative Christians... We have been well-trained in feminism in the sexual revolution. When the Bible says Adelphoi for brothers, and we translate it brothers and sisters, we are mistranslating. Oh, did I just exclude all women from the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. But women are daughters of God. And when the Bible uses masculine language for brothers or sons, Dave is correct in pointing out that is highly significant. Okay? Not because women can't be adopted into God's family directly. That's, we understand the sonship language uh, in a general sense does include women. Of course it does. But in the real world, so not the one that we have pretended to live in for 50 years, in the real world that actually exists out there, man and woman are equal in value, but they are not at all the same. Okay? Why this masculine language? Well, because to be a son is something different than being a daughter. A son inherits. Okay? A son takes his father's name and keeps it. Okay? There's something in sonship that carries with it a mantle of responsibility that just saying children would not communicate. The Bible uses masculine language because the world despite our protesting against it, the world is patriarchal, always has been, is today, and forever will be patriarchal. That's the way God made it. God's a father, after all. Patriarchy just means father rule. And so when the Bible uses gendered language, we ought never to kick against it. Because something is being conveyed about the responsibility 
and the authority, but the responsibility that get put on a son's shoulders. That is not a one-to-one carryover for women. And I think if we are going to recover a biblical ethic of marriage, of sexuality, and so forth, to just try to go back, oh, remember in 1990 it was so great we didn't have transgenderism? No, no, no. It was absolutely there in seed form. Okay? Because we already were treating men and women as though they're interchangeable in the civic world, <laughs> they're interchangeable in, in, in the economic world, they're interchangeable in the home, they're in, right, we've already, that's my whole life. I don't remember a time when North America was living in the real world. We traded the real world in for this long before I showed up here. But if we're going to get back there, if we're going to start living in our families in the real world, we have to recapture a biblical vision of gender, and that means all the way up and all the way down, all the way to the left, all the way to the right. And so I think it's actually really important that we keep the gendered language that the Bible presents. The the Bible could have used gender-neutral language if it wanted to. And evidently, God did not want to, so would we be wiser than God? I would say, no, we should not be wiser than God. Um, but we have to recapture that. And even though I am intentional about saying forefathers instead of ancestors, I personally am intentional about saying mankind rather than people. Because I think it's really important that we use language in a way that undergirds a biblical conception about men leading, men taking responsibility, men having an obligation to their fathers and to their sons. Men are always in a stream of history, and uh, if we want to think about how we care for our wives, how we care for our children, gendered language is a support to a biblical conception of that. So Adelphoi needs to stay brothers. (laughs) It's not brothers and sisters. Yes, women are included in in a very real sense, but that biblical conception of what are men for, what are women for, uh, what are sons for, what are daughters for, we absolutely have to capture that vision so we can start living in the real world again. Just to try to go back 30 years will not help anything because all that's going to happen is give it 30 years and we're right back here again. <laughs> okay? Conservatism is not about setting the clock back. Conservatism is about the fixed things that God has baked into creation. They're fixed. That, we're not trying to conserve 30 years ago or 80 years ago. We're trying to live in reality. And the Bible paints this picture of reality. And so four minutes won't, <laughs> won't do justice to this, but Dave is absolutely correct. W- the, the gendered language, the, the picture of sonship, of responsibility, uh, of living in a world where uh, fathers rule uh, inevitably, fathers rule poorly or they rule well, but you cannot get away from male headship. It, it just isn't going to happen in a universe that God Uh, made. So our language should be consistent and should help us point in the same directions. And I, of course, I would make application to uh, married women being renamed by their husbands. That's a custom that I think a lot of even Christian people just do out of momentum. I have, yeah, I have no idea why we do that. It's just, yeah, it's just always been done. I'll take my husband's name. No, no. (laughs) That's an act of living in the real world. Taking your husband's name is saying, I live in reality. I live in a world in which a husband is responsible for his wife and he leads his family. Therefore, we all share a family name. That's living in the real world. Um, And that's a biblical conception of reality. Um, And so I'll stop there. But the the gendered language, when we talk about the fatherhood of God and adoption, it's significant. God's not a mother. He's a father. And we are heirs and, and sons together with the daughters.
but I will leave it there. Many Bible translations have given up on this, and the fruit that is going to come from that, and already has come from that, is going to be very, very poor. Already has been. The NIV caved about 15 years ago, and very sadly, the NASB caved in the last two or three years, right? So John MacArthur bought the rights to the old NASB. It's now called the Legacy Standard Bible. ESV came out as a direct... Uh, and that's the Bible I use. The ESV came out in response to the NIV capitulating on this and, and going the gender neutral route. Uh, and so that's why we have an ESV today. And that's why you'll see now the Legacy Standard Bible is your old NASB from five years ago. There is, at times, yep. And there, yeah, and there are places like that, but in the places where male-specific language is used of sons or of brothers, what the gender-neutral translations have done is taken all of those references where you can legitimately include women by application, but where the language is brothers or sons. Uh, and what the NIV and the NASB have done is changed that to brothers and sisters, sons and daughters or children or so forth. And the original languages do not give you permission to do that. And, and, and so, if there are legitimate places where it talks about siblings in the Hebrew or in the Greek, leave it. It's brothers and sisters. If it's, if it's gendered language, we must, to be faithful, we must leave it as gendered language because that's the way God has chosen to speak. Dave, Ron and then Dave. Well, you run into problems. When, when you get smarter than God, you run into significant translation issues. Um, yeah, or even the, the, here's a real life example. They don't change that, so what they might do is put it in a footnote. Uh, there's confusion on this where it introduces confusion where there's absolutely zero confusion in the original languages. Let's say uh, in the pastoral epistles where it talks about the qualifications for a deacon... He's the husband of one wife. He manages his children well. He's not a drunkard. He's not a brawler. He, he, he. And then in the original it says, and likewise the wives, or likewise the women, there's no ambiguity. We're talking about a deacon's wife. A deacon's wife is going to help him with his ministry. He's gonna, she's going to help bring food to people. She's going to help the young moms, right? Of course, a deacon's wife and her conduct is very important to the ministry of the deacon. But when you take that and say, just likewise the women, or some translations even go so far as to say the deaconesses, you've introduced in English something that isn't there. And so then we look at our English Bibles and say, yeah, it's really, it's a tough call. No, it's not a tough call. It's not. It's a tough call in English because of translation decisions that were made, which were actually interpretive decisions, not linguistic decisions. And we introduce a whole bunch of confusion into our world that just simply was not there for the ancients. Uh, or it can take, because you have to work with pronouns then too, what can happen is where you've got corporate language and individual language becoming ambiguous, right? So uh, he who endures, and to go back to Vern's point, sometimes there's this personal language about he who endures to the end. Well, if, if he is outlawed and it becomes they, 
Now you've got a potentially, in English, you've got a potentially corporate body. So what if I persevere in an apostate church? Right? If this is corporate language, if they persevere, well, now this could mean the whole church. So the only way I can finish well is if my whole church finishes well. And I'm a lone holdout, and I live 45 miles from a faithful church, so I keep going to my meh church that's maybe 50% regenerate and 50% not. The original languages don't have a difficulty with your salvation. But if this has to move to corporate language to obey the rules of the gender police, you could start interpreting it that way. They. The church has to finish well for Ron to finish well. The Greek doesn't allow that. English, obeying the rules of the gender cops, introduces theological ambiguity at the least that can be interpreted either way. Bible translation is a big deal. It's a big deal. And I'm not a King James onlyist, I'm not an ESV onlyist, but I will say Bible translation is a big deal. We do not have permission to do anything with the text. It must be faithful. Right, but, so Dave is pointing out correctly, so women have, in the biblical world, women have equal access to salvation as men do. But that actually, ironically, gets lost if you ungender the language. Because sons clearly carry heirship. Sons clearly carry on the family name. Right? And now the gospel, including women, as heirs, that gets lost if you just collapse all the language into a unigender, right? And, and my reading of the story we're in right now, now is not the right time to do unigender stuff with the Bible. It never is, because it's never right, but it, it, there's an interesting cause and effect there. How much of this disobedience in the world actually started in the church, 
right? It has been pointed out Methodists ordained women before the military put them in F-18 cockpits. The church led the rebellion in many real cases. Uh, Liberal churches were performing same-sex marriages in Canada before it was legal. Okay, so there is a real sense in which the church sometimes is at the front end of the apostasy. And when a secular world says, see, even Christians agree, that's actually extremely destructive to the voice of those Christians who want to hold on to the Orthodox faith. No, and that's, that's absolutely right. So to close that off, and then we'll go for coffee here. When there is translation difficulty, moving from the first century Greek world into our world, I would suggest the right path is never to accommodate the Bible to our language. I'd say the right track is always, if the language is tough, leave it tough. And then have qualified men explain what's happening. To just collapse the Bible down to our level, those categories for explanation and for stretching your understanding or new ways of understanding things doesn't even exist. Leave it difficult, leave it ambiguous, explain it, rather than just destroy uh, the, the biblical concept of reality. Right, it's to get the text into another language. Yep. Yeah, yeah and it's the story of how the NIV collapsed is a, it's a fascinating story. James Dobson, there's a, no, I'm telling a story. It's a fascinating story, how the NIV capitulated, and especially after they were bought by a, a secular publisher and the rights to Zondervan they did something that they signed in writing in Colorado Springs five years earlier that all Bible translators said, yep, we will never do that. Zondervan sold to HarperCollins and five years, yeah, yeah, we signed that, but new ownership now, so we're just going to do what we want to do. Major backlash against the TNIV. Zondervan said, okay, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. We'll fix it. You'll get your old NIV back, and the new NIV is 95% of what the TNIV was. They fixed almost nothing. And, and that's just the NIV now. <laughs> but you're still in your 20s. 
Yeah, so Sean is just saying correctly, in the authorized version, the King James Version of 1611, well, all the King James Versions. Uh, I'm not sure if the Geneva Bible does it as well, but in in the oldest English translations, if you have to add or change a word in English to make it work, uh, which sometimes has to happen, uh, earlier translations would put that English word that had to go in there for this to make any sense, they'd put it in italics. So you knew when you're reading that word, this is a translation decision, right? Um, I could tell you, Morgenstunden have gold in Munden, and then I'd say, well, what that means is morning hours have gold in their mouths. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you. The early bird gets the worm means something to you. And if I have to do that to get it over, I'll put it in italics. So you know some reworking had to work here for this to happen. Uh, And sometimes still you'll see it in square parentheses or you'll see it in footnotes uh, and so forth. But, But yes, we need to know the difference between actual translation and interpretive decisions. And the less literal your translation gets, the more you're reading a commentary and the less you're reading the Bible. So that by the time you get to the message, you don't have a Bible. You have someone's running commentary on the Bible. That's not necessarily all bad. But the message is not the Bible. The living Bible is not the Bible. It's someone's paraphrase of the Bible, which is fine. It's not wrong. Just read it that way. Don't go to the living Bible or to the message to form your theological positions because it's not able to do that. If it's going to help you with your devotional reading, sure, nothing wrong. Keith. I'm not familiar with that one. Right, so Keith's talking about, and I'm not familiar with the example he gave, the pigeon translation you said, where the receiving language has a very limited vocabulary. Okay, I've seen that done. I've got the Plotica Bible. The receiving language has a limited theological vocabulary. Low German has a limited theological vocabulary. And so what ends up happening is what you have to do sometimes is write a sentence where two words sufficed in the Greek. That's okay. That's a limitation of the receiving language. But again, I would point to the fact that it's important, and I'm not a languages guy, but it is important to understand that your translation of the Bible has been translated. And so the work of language scholarship remains important. And so someone needs to be doing that. And if it's up to the shepherds then to explain if there's difficulty. It's not up to the translators to just say, well, it doesn't matter, we're just going to move it here. It's up to the shepherds to explain difficult concepts then, I would say. But we've got people coming in now, and Sunday school should have been over a few minutes ago. And once again, we went from adoption to discussing languages. So I kind of like that free flow style. But let's close in prayer and carry on. Father God, thank you for today. Lord, I want to thank you for giving us your word, and I want to thank you that even uh, in a world that you cursed with many languages, uh, yet, Lord, despite the confusion that you sent, uh, you are bringing it back together by getting your word into all those languages and creating a new people for yourself. And as we think about the work of translation, as we think about the work of language and the role language plays in our way of thinking, 
I pray that we would be dedicated to a faithfulness, to an understanding of difficult concepts, rather than letting our own contemporary culture rule the day and uh, rule our categories of thinking. But most of all this, Lord, uh, morning, I want to thank you that you are our Father, that you have adopted us into your family, that we can know you, not just as judge, not just as some distant deity of pure force, uh, but that you care for us to know you as Father, that you have put your word in our hearts, that you have regenerated us, you have given us life like a father, and we can call on you as Father. You care about the details of our lives. Lord, and I pray that we would press into that truth. I pray that we would see how precious it is that you care about the details, that we can come to you with our needs, that you do protect and provide and care. Lord, and for those of us whose earthly fathers have failed us, I pray that we would not put that design on you, but rather that we would see who you are. Uh, and then for those of us who are men, that we would do our best to live up as living copies to what you have called us to be. Amen.